If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Mark chapter 12. Uh, Mark chapter 12 will be in verses 18 through 27. Give you a few moments to find it. And the Sadducees came to Jesus, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up the offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, but he died and he left no offspring. And so the second brother took her, and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we turn our hearts to your word, and we pray that our worship has been pleasing in your sight and has happened in spirit and in truth. So help us, God. And we now turn uh, in the service to let you speak to your people. Lord, you delight to fill us with wisdom. You delight to show us your way. Your spirit has carried men along who have written this word. And in your goodness, you are pleased to use broken and frail men to proclaim it. Not for our glory, but for yours and for the good of your people. That's our prayer this morning, that you will be pleased to use your servant for your good and your glory, that your people will be built up. Would you do this for the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So, uh, when was the first time you thought about life after death? Um, I remember uh, the instance that I remember uh, most, and it was when my great-grandmother uh, passed. And I remember certain scenes from uh, the time of her death vividly. I remember uh, riding in our blue van and sitting on the right seat. And as we went into the cemetery, I heard the Caravan of Love by the Osley brothers in the background. I remember that. Uh, I remember my great-grandmother. And um, as a kid, I was scared of old people. I think the, the wrinkly skin and, and just it. And so my parents would always want me to kind of go and to hug, and, and I was kind of the kid that kind of stayed back a little bit. But I remember what her house smells like. I remember her shallow driveway is on a hill out near Jackson State, and you could only get two cars there because if you put a third car there, you might be right there in the middle of the street. 
I remember going into the cemetery, and I remember thinking, this, this can't be it. And I remember seeing her body go into the ground, and that, that, that's the first time I remember thinking about life after death. When was the first time you had that thought? How old were you? Here's a question. Have you ever thought about a blue gorilla flying a red airplane, landing that red airplane on the steeple of this church so that the gorilla might come down the steeple and walk to the kitchen and grab a banana and then get back up on the steeple and fly away. Have you ever had that thought? Raise your hand. <laughs> no one has had that thought, right? No one. And you've had a million thoughts that no one else in this world have ever thought about, right? Let's be really honest. But raise your hand if you've ever thought about life after death. You see that? Why do we think about that? Despite our differences, despite our ages, why do we think about life after death and the possibility of a resurrection? The Bible says it. It says that you come here and God has done something. He has not written the story of an orange gorilla in a red airplane who parks on the steeple to go get a banana, he's not written that on your heart. But what he has written on your heart is this longing for eternity. He's put that there. And so it doesn't matter if it's 1986 and the caravan of love is playing in the background and you're riding in a blue van going to a cemetery and you think about life after death. It doesn't matter if the first time you think about that and you're 13 and no one has died, right? What we see from Scripture, God has put that there. And if we all live long enough, you'll think about it. And that's his grace to us. And what we're encountering in our passage this morning is a group of people who've had that thought. They've had the thought, and what they've done with the thought is dismissed it. There is no resurrection. There is no life after death. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe all of this is mumbo-jumbo. And Jesus takes the posture of even though you disagree and dismiss, I'm going to engage you. And so I want us to look at this passage under three headings, a surprising recipe, a sobering reality, and a stunning revelation. If you're taking notes, I'll fill the rest of that in. A surprising recipe for denying the resurrection. Look, we're in a section in Mark's gospel when uh, Jesus is being tempted and tested. Last week, it was the Pharisees and the Herodians. 
The week before that, it was the scribes and the religious leaders and the chief priests and the elders. Next week, the scribes are going to come up again. You got to understand the section of Mark's gospel that we're in, that everybody is kind of coming up to trip and trap Jesus up. And so when we read this section, you got to read it through this lens that hypocrisy is happening. And how do we know hypocrisy is happening? How do we know that they don't really care about the resurrection? What they care most about is embarrassing Jesus. How do we know? Look, look, look at their question. Look at their question right at the end of verse 23. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be, Jesus? For the seven of them have had her. Now, look at the first verse of our section in verse 18. And the Sadducees came who say there is no resurrection. So Mark is telling you up front that these dudes don't even believe in the resurrection, but they ask Jesus, when this woman is raised, whose, hus- whose wife will she be in the resurrection? It's hypocrisy. They don't care about the resurrection. Now, they, they, they throw this trap out there at Jesus, and it's from the passage that Fee read from Deuteronomy uh, 25. And back there in Deuteronomy, th- there was a law. The law was if a man and a woman were married and the husband died and the woman was left as a widow and had no children, then that husband who died, his brother, was supposed to marry that widow. Now, in in that time, you didn't have Social Security, that if you were a widow and you were childless, then you were vulnerable. And so what God built into the fabric of Israel was this care for the vulnerable. But when you read Deuteronomy, it's not just about the care for the woman, that when you go back and read that passage, you want to know what it's also about? It's about the remembrance of the dead. You see, God says, you shall marry his wife, And when you have a a child, a son, that son, right, that son shall be named in honor of the brother who was dead so that his name would always be remembered in Israel. In other words, this was God's way of saying, though he dies, he is never forgotten and you're never to forget him. And that's why if a brother didn't want to do that and perpetuate the name of his dead brother so that Israel would forget that he was alive, you know what she was supposed to do? Spit in that dude's face. And his whole house is the the name of the dude who did not want to honor his brother. That's powerful. I saw Story Grace when this was read, and you should have saw her face like, what, you going to spit on him and take a sandal off? What is all of that, right? So the Sadducees, they come up with this story. Suppose there's a woman, and she has one husband. They have no children. He dies. And in Jewish culture, when you say seven, that's kind of completion and perfection. And so they concoct this story where this woman had this happen to her not one time, but one brother, and he died, and another brother, and he died, and another brother, and he died, and another brother, he died. Seven times, this is this woman's lot, and she never had a husband long enough to have a child, and finally she dies. And the ones who don't believe in the resurrection ask Jesus, hmm, we got you. Who is she going to be married to in the resurrection? 
because there is no resurrection, right? Now, here's what I want to dig into. Not the fact that they're wrong. I want to ask a different question of the text. How do you get to that place when resurrection is such a dominant theme of the Bible? How do you get to that place where you deny it? Because there's a right way and a wrong way to read Scripture. And the wrong way is to wag your finger at those Sadducees saying, how could you? It's not the right way to read the Bible. The right way to read the Bible is to say, whoa, outside of your grace, that's going to be me. Left to myself, I'm going to deny the things that you say are important. And if I don't do it with my words, Jesus, I'm going to do it with my lifestyle. My lifestyle will act, it will show that I don't think that I'll see you one day. And so the right posture is actually to dig into this and say, hey, how, how do you get there? And I think a surprising recipe surfaces. Here's the first part of the recipe. Y- y'all got recipes, right? You want to bake some chicken or you want to do something. You need a little bit of that and a little bit of that and you need to cook it for this long. I think they're cooking a nasty dish. And there's a recipe that they're following. And the first thing you need is a little bit of Scripture. What do you mean a little bit of Scripture? You know just enough Scripture to talk about the Bible. Just enough Scripture so that people around you will think you're well-versed. But you won't read the hard passages. You won't read the Bible in its fullness. You'll pick and choose and listen to famous preachers who pick certain verses out of context and they preach only the famous verses you want to hear from and you got blind spots way back over here. All I want to do is have just a little bit of scripture. I want to pick and choose. Now, how do we know they're picking and choosing? Because here's the difference between a Pharisee and a Sadducee. They're both religious leaders in Jesus's day. But the big difference is the Pharisees embrace all of the Old Testament, all of it. And the Sadducees They only embrace the first five books of the Bible. The Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. If it wasn't in the first five, it wasn't in the Sadducees' Bible. You get it now? They're picking and choosing what they want to read when all of Israel, they're reading the whole canon, but these dudes only want to read the first five. A little bit of scripture. And you know what else goes into that recipe? A lot of power. And a lot of wealth. And a lot of influence. Now, let me let you in on a secret. When preachers prepare to preach the word, here's what we'll usually do. Here's what I do. I get to the office on Monday. I typically don't like to be bothered on Monday with administrative stuff, anything. What I want to do is get into the office, close my door, recoup from Sunday, lick my wounds, go before the Lord, and spend time in his word apart from commentaries, 
I want to translate. I want to read it. I want to let the gospel sink deeply into my soul for the, follow, for the next Sunday. And then if I'm lucky, when I show up on, on, on Tuesday, I got some kind of outline I'm working with, and I'm going to put it down, and then I'm going to pick it back up, and I'm going to pull out all of these books. And between meetings, I want to get my books out. And I got like 20 books on Mark. And, and here's, the, here's what we do. Sometimes when we're studying, we want to be brilliant. And we want to find something that nobody else sees in the Word. Because you do this every week, and it can kind of be, it can wear you down. And so here's what we do. We find one little thing that we think is new. And we got 20 books right here. And 19 of these books ain't saying nothing that we think we just found that's new. And then we come across one. And this one book, this guy, he gets it and I get it. And therefore, I'm going to stand before you and say, hey, well, so-and-so said, and I'm going to feel good because I done pulled this one out, right? That's one way. And sometimes when we study, it's stuff that I don't see on Monday. And then I get these books out on Tuesday. And I pull out these books. And this dude is saying it. This woman is saying it. This woman is saying it. This man is saying it. This scholar is saying it. And guess what? They don't even agree. They're not all reformed. And they're all saying the same thing about the passage. And that's where it's like, oh, okay, like this might be important. That's what's happening in the passage this morning. You want to know what everybody is saying about the Sadducees that I missed? They were the aristocrats of Jewish culture. I'm going to read you three quotes. I can give you 17 more if you want them, but I'm going to give you three, right? Just three. Now, hear me out. Bruner. On that same day, the sophisticated Sadducees came to Jesus. The Sadducees were the sophisticated ones of Israel. They were enamored with Greek culture in collaboration with Roman power. They were thoroughly Hellenized and pleasure-loving. Mark Strauss, Josephus describes them as being the upper class associated with the priestly aristocracy and the temple leadership. At least two of the high priests were Sadducees, and in Jesus' day, they dominated the Sanhedrin as priestly aristocrats. They were not looking for a Messiah who would come and free them from their Roman overlords. Prophecies about the Messiah also occurred primarily in the prophets, which the Sadducees did not regard as authoritative. Here's what Dave Garland says, the Sadducees were an influential group within Jewish political circles. They were the party of the high priests, the aristocratic families, and the wealthy merchants. Within the economic system of Israel, they represented the wealthier elements. They enjoyed Greco-Roman culture and cultivated good relationships with Roman rulers and the elites. They were conservative theologically, but they were very prosperous economically. You see the recipe? A little bit of scripture. I'm going to read what I want to read. I'm going to do like Thomas Jefferson, and I'm going to come up with my own Bible, and I'm going to cut out everything that talks about miracles and Jesus' resurrection. I'm going to do the slave Bible, and anything that talks about how owners ought to treat slaves, I'm going to do away with it. And then because I'm in power, right? Because I'm in power and I'm affluent and, and I'm used to telling people what to do and I have means, then my life starts to look like heaven. Then why do I need heaven? 
I'm the one calling the shots. And that affects our posture before God because when we come before the Scripture, who gives them the right to say what is the Bible or not? It's because they have the best schools and the best cars and the best clothes and the best commas in the bank account and the best and the best and the best. And here is what it does to the heart. We approach God that way. Do not be deceived into thinking that you and I could never go here. A little bit of scripture and a whole lot of blessing and abundance and power. And that is the recipe for you and I to jettison things that are pivotal in scripture. I think this is what James is after. I think the people he's writing to, they're enamored with status. They're enamored with a little bit of the scriptures, but I don't have to obey it all. And what does James tell them? This is pure and undefiled religion, that you remember the widows and the orphans. What does James tell them? When the wealthy show up in the congregation and the poor, why are you impartial? Why do you run over to cater to and brush shoulders with the wealthy and you overlook the poor? This is why James says, if you receive the implanted word of God with meekness, he puts the humble piece in there. It's not just the word of God in its totality. It's with a posture of humility. If you receive the whole counsel of God and you're humble as you receive it, your life will be spared. Your soul will be saved. Here's what it means. If you're used to always being right in the world, when you open this book, your posture needs to be, Lord, I'm wrong. If you're used to telling people, you do this and you do this and you do this, your posture, my posture needs to be, no, 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 but this is what you are calling me to do. If we're used to being at the center of all the conversations, if we're used to being the one that's always right in arguments, if we're used to being at the center of a company or the center of a family, you got to pick this book up and you got to realize you are not at the center of it. Somebody else is. And his name is Jesus. Do you see what's happening here? The recipe for denying starts with a little and a lot. And therefore, it's up to us by God's spirit to read the Bible broadly, to read that stuff that gets in our hearts and to read it humbly, to be under the word. And not with a posture of being over it. The second thing I want us to think about is the, the, the sobering reality that awaits us if we deny the resurrection. Y'all know sometimes Jesus, 
can build a case and build a beautiful argument. And then sometimes he get all in our stuff, right? Did y'all notice what, how Jesus responded to these dudes? Look at verse 24. He flat out says, you are wrong. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Look at the end of verse 27. You are quite wrong. You hear what Jesus is saying? You say there is no resurrection. We ain't got to talk about it. I'm going to tell you straight up to your face, you're wrong. All of y'all wrong. <laughs> now, the word there for being wrong it's this idea of you, you, you've gotten off the path. You've, you've gotten off the path, which I think is helpful because what Jesus is saying is God has written eternity on your hearts. That's there. And what's happening here, because of your little view of Scripture and your power, you, you, you've gotten off the path. And here's the thing about paths. Don't they lead somewhere? They do. And so the question that we can ask of the text is, what path are they on when you deny the resurrection? And you can look at 1 Corinthians 15, because in that chapter, they were doing the same thing. They were saying, but there is no resurrection. And you want to know what Paul says? If you're on that path, let me show you where this path leads. If you say there is no resurrection, then here's what it means. It means that I'm wasting my time, says Paul. If there is no such thing as the resurrection, then I'm misrepresenting God, says Paul. And if there is no resurrection, then the people that have died, they are gone forever, and you'll never, ever, 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 ever see them again. They're gone into oblivion and will be no more. And if there is no resurrection then even Jesus has not been raised from the dead. And if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, you're calling God a liar. And if there is no resurrection and Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then what do you do about your sins? Because Jesus lived and he obeyed and then he died and went into a grave and then he was raised to bear fruit and to show you and I that our sins are atoned for. But if there is no resurrection, then the judgment of God is still upon you. And if there is no resurrection, then we are pitied fools because all we do is have hope in this life and nothing more. Do you hear what Paul is saying? If you want to go down this path and deny the resurrection, then a nightmare awaits you at the end. And here's the thing about Jesus' resurrection, and I do think we need to broaden how we view it. Here's how we tend to view the resurrection. Jesus lived and he died for me. He went in the ground and my sins were crucified and, and the Lord 
took them away. And then on the third day, Jesus rose and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And because Jesus was raised from the dead, Christians will be raised from the dead and we will enjoy him forever. Here's the thing that Paul says about Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is not just pointing Christians to their resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is pointing everyone to a resurrection. And the question is, what will your resurrection life look like? Will it be in the presence and company of Christ? Or will you be cast away from the Christ that you refuse to bow the knee to now? Either way, resurrection is going to make all roads lead to the throne of Jesus. Look, there are a lot of things in the Christian life that are gray. Here's what I mean. If we have communion every Sunday or a church has communion once a month, you think Jesus is going to say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you because of that? If you speak in tongues and you think the speaking in tongues is something different and you don't think they're speaking in tongues, do you think that we're going to be banished from enjoying Jesus forever for that? If you're Pentecostal or Baptist or Methodist or Reformed or Presbyterian, do you think you're going to be, you know, right? You get what I'm saying? There are some things that are important, but they're not ultimate. But here's the thing about the resurrection. That's ultimate. You can't deny that because in 1 Corinthians, here's what Paul says, I delivered unto you that which was of the uttermost importance. And here's what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15. He gives us one sentence. And in that one sentence, he gives us that which was of most importance. It was that Jesus lived according to the scriptures. Jesus suffered and died according to the scriptures. And Jesus was raised according to the scriptures. And then Jesus appeared and showed himself. He says, this is all a package deal. You can't separate the resurrection from the good news. And therefore, it's like this. Nate, you got that photo? So, that's my son, and I think he was like three. And the reason I took this photo, not necessarily because of Jenga that we're playing, but look at his look at his eyes. They are like locked in on one block in Jenga. And it's that one block right there that this three-year-old kid kind of knows now. If I touch this block, we're not playing Jenga no more. Game is over. Why? Because everything above it is resting on that block. The quickest way to destroy the game of Jenga is to move the block on which everything rests and stands. And here is what Jesus is saying. Resurrection is like that one block right there. If you mess with resurrection, Christianity collapses. It's pivotal. It's so important. God has written that longing in your heart. Thank you, Nate. It's pivotal. It's important. 
And so can we at least hear Jesus out? If we don't believe in resurrection, we're straying away. And he comes to us and say, no, you're wrong. We're straying away from the God who's written that there. We're straying away from the reality that in Mark's gospel, Jesus has already said on three different occasions, I will live, I will be crucified, I will die, and I will, on the third day, I will rise. If there is no resurrection, then we're doing the work of dismissing this colossal person and work of Jesus. If there's no resurrection, then there's no justice. All of those things that we long for in this life that we don't see answered in this life, then we're just hopeless, right? Like you got to see how big of a deal this is. Your heart was made for resurrection. And that's why C.S. Lewis says, there are no ordinary people. You have never, ever talked to a mere mortal. Nations and cultures and arts and civilizations, these are mortal. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, snub, marry, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. You hear what C.S. Lewis is saying? When you see people... You're not seeing mortals. You're seeing people who will spend eternity somewhere. And that's why C.S. Lewis also writes, for those of you who think that this life is it, could it be, could it be that you are content with making mud pies? While God is offering you a day at the beach. If you think this life is all there is, it's like a kid making mud pies in the dirt and in the smog of London. When your father in heaven says, I got an eternity at the beach. The last thing is a stunning revelation of the life that awaits us after the resurrection. Jesus rebukes them. He says, you are wrong. And then he says in verse 25, he says, for when they rise from the dead. He doesn't say if. He doesn't say maybe. He says, not only are you wrong, but I'm definitely wrong making resurrection happen. Now, here's the thing that's important. Remember I told you they only embrace the first five books of the Bible, and they come to Jesus with a made-up story that's loosely tied to a passage from Deuteronomy. Now, Jesus is just like par excellence teacher. He's like, I know y'all jokers, and I know you only embrace the Pentateuch, and so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to up you. I'm going to go to your book, one of your books that you put in your canon, and I'm going to show you in the book that's in your canon that resurrection is there. And so what does Jesus do? He gives them the story in Exodus chapter 3, when Israel has cried out for a deliverer. And the Lord has raised up Moses, who was raised in Pharaoh's home, 
who killed somebody, and then he had to go on the run, and then the Lord found him out there tending animals and appeared to him and is going to send this guy back. And when the Lord showed up in the burning bush, notice what Jesus says. The Lord in the bush, he said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And did you notice something? He didn't say I was their God. He said, I am their God. You know, they had been dead thousands or a thousand years. Abraham lived 175. Isaac lived 185. We don't know how old Israel, Jacob lived. But then we know that there's 400 years of slavery, and we know that Joseph died 100 and something. I mean, we're talking about when Moses shows up, you're talking a, a, a cool thousand years. They're beyond stinking in the grave. And you know what God says? I am their God. Not I was. Now, here's the thing that Tim Keller says that I think is beautiful, and it resonates with my soul. When you truly love someone, whether it's a spouse or a friend or a child or a parent, you never want that relationship to go in the past tense. No one takes pleasure in saying, I had a husband. Because to use the past tense means that the husband has died or the relationship has been severed. But when there's true love, no one walks around beating their chest saying, I had a son, but he was murdered. That's a mother's and a father's worst nightmare. He's saying that no one likes to think about relationships in the past tense. And he says, if that's true for humans, how much more is it true for God? God cannot stand to have a past tense relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so God himself says, I am still their God. And what that means, God is saying that he's, uh, he's, he's showing us that God will never lose those that are precious to him. We'll never go into the past tense of relating to God. We're going to always be in the present tense, whether we are incarcerated, whether we are in the ground, whether we die, whatever. If we are truly God's people, it's a signed, sealed, and delivered deal, never going into the past tense. And in that same chapter, it's where God's covenant name comes to surface. Moses says, well, who do I say sent me? He says, you tell him Yahweh. I am who I am, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And do you know what is conveyed in that name? I'm going to be covenantally faithful to you now and forevermore. And there is nothing that will separate you from my love, not things present, not things to come, not angels, not demons, not heights, not death. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus if we're his, this is what Moses is telling them. 
You don't know the Bible. God enters covenant with his people forever. He is not the God of the dead, but those who are with him are alive in Jesus. They're there. He is still their God. Relationships still intact. And so you don't know the scriptures. That's the problem. And it's plain as day right there in the present tense in Exodus. It's beautiful. And then Jesus gives us a little glimpse of this resurrection life. Now, I'm going to confess, y'all, this is one of the passages that kind of makes me sad because I love my wife. And going to heaven and what Jesus says right here, there's no marrying and no marriage and no, no being given in marriage. So he's actually saying that something is going to change about our relationship. She won't be my wife in heaven. And Jesus actually says they don't marry. They're not given in marriage. They'll be like the angels. And I'm reading this, and I'm like, thank you, Jesus, but you just kind of made it unclear even more. You see, the Sadducees didn't believe in angels. So Jesus is like telling them something that they know nothing about. And there is no book about angels in the Bible where they tell you how big they are. And what is their language? And what do they all look like? And do they eat? Are they male and female? Are they, I mean, like, you, you got to understand that Jesus doesn't bring clarity by telling us we're going to be like the angels. I think he brings more confusion. So, should we be spending our times trying to look up every passage in the Bible that talks about angels? And can we infer from what we learn about angels in the Bible that everything about angels will be true for us? Because if we become like them, then we are made in their image and no longer in the image of Christ. And so this whole idea of being like angels, it's not a one-to-one -one correlation. We will not be angels. We're still going to be humans, glorified humans. But in some way, we're going to be likened to them. And I don't think it brings a lot of clarity. And so here's the question. Jesus, what are you doing? I think what we're supposed to do with this passage. Now, remember, they believe in the first five books of the Bible. They ask Jesus a question from the first five books of the Bible. Jesus gives them an answer from Exodus, which is in the first five books of the Bible. And here's what I think. I think Jesus says something to them. You don't know Scripture and you don't know the power of God. I think what Jesus wants us to do is to go to the first five books of the Bible and ask this question. What do we learn about the power of God in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy? And maybe that might be a clue to what resurrection life will be like. And here is what you'll discover, that in the book of Exodus, God comes to Moses. He says, my power will be on display through you. 
in Exodus 9. But for this person, purpose, I have raised you up to show my power that my name will be proclaimed in all the earth. Exodus 14, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians and they feared the Lord and believed in him. Exodus 15, and they sang a new song, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. In other words, what Jesus, I think, is telling them who only embraced the first five books of the Bible, you go back over there and you get in the Bible and you figure out what you learned about the power of God and it's on display in the book of Exodus. Who is this God who can turn the Nile into blood? Who is this God that can make all of Egypt dark and Israel who are dwelling in Goshen, they're living in light? Like what, what is that about? When everywhere else over here is in darkness and in your little part of the world, there's light. Like, is there a line when you step out of Goshen and you step into Egypt? Are you in darkness and light? Like, what's going on there? What's going on there when gnats and locusts and God can pinpoint the, every single person who didn't put blood over their door for Passover, and how does he choose that, that, hey, the death angel will go there and he will not make a mistake? How does he choose to part the Red Sea and suspend water on either side and it's dry ground so that Israel can walk through and then when the Egyptians try to chase them down, it smothers them? How can this be that God would raise Jesus back from the dead? When you start to tap into the power of God, here is what you learn. There is not anything that he can't do. Nothing. You want the sun? I control the sun. You want life and death? I control life and death. You want to know who's going to live and who's going to die? I control that. You want gnats? I got gnats. You got locusts? I got locusts. There is not one thing that is beyond the power of God. And so here is what it means for us Christian. It means that we can trust him. We can trust that if he controls the sun and the moon and the stars, if he speaks all things into existence by his powerful word, if he's going to create this new creation, if he's going to abolish sin, if he's going to put Satan in, the, in, in hell forever, if he's going to make everything new, then is it possible that a part of his power will be on display to reorient our inner longings? So that we're sad at the thought of thinking of not having a spouse. But could it be that God's great power is not just making the world around us new? But he's going to make us new. In a way that we can't fully comprehend right now. And we don't have to be sad. We actually can trust him. Your power is great. And we won't miss or grieve or long. And it means that if you're single this morning and you're not married, you will be complete. Not by another person, but in him. And your heart will sing and it will leap and it will be satisfied. You see, I have a sneaking suspicion that if we let Revelation talk to Mark chapter 12, Jesus is saying none of those seven men will have her in heaven. 
but she has a husband, and it's me. And she will be satisfied, and I will never leave her, and I will never forsake her, and she will not have to worry, and she will be content with my love. The Bible ends with a wedding where the bride who walks down the aisle is the church clothed in white and the groom who's waiting is Jesus and we'll be satisfied in him. I love what John Piper in his book this momentary marriage. This is the closing of it. He says, Noel, if we live another 20 years, our marriage will be 60 years old. And judging from what I see in the Bible and my own memory, it will have been a momentary marriage. But it has been so much more than momentary. It is a parable of permanence written from eternity about the greatest story that ever was. And the parable that we are pointing to in our marriage is about Christ and his church. It has been a great honor to take this stage with you. What exalted roles we have been given to play. And someday I will take your hand and we will stand on that stage. And we will make one last bow together. And the parable will be over. And the everlasting reality that our marriage pointed to will begin. That's good news. And it's yours in a person who is the resurrection and the life. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word and we thank you for being our teacher. As we go our separate ways, as I take my seat, would your spirit be at work? I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs>